The heart of a champion in the Chiefs, another crushing defeat for a Bills organization and their fan base, Detroit Rock City as their one win from a Super Bowl, an almost San Francisco defeat that became a San Francisco treat, and the Ravens are looking every bit as the team to beat encapsulates a divisional round weekend as the conference championships are up next. The NBA's halfway point is here, or have come and gone for some. What does the landscape look like for the second half? The Islanders fire their coach and bring in an absolute shocker as a replacement. Josh Hader finds a home in Houston as they look to go back to a World Series. And Iga Swiatek is ousted down under, leaving it all for Coco Goff to win back-to-back Grand Slams. That and so much more as we kick off another week of Sports Talk. It's all coming up, but first, this message. J-Reel's here to spend a brief moment and share a friendly reminder to please subscribe, rate, review the podcast on whichever platform you listen to on the regular. Just so we can increase the visibility of the J-Reel's podcast to those who aren't familiar with it. Leave plenty of stars, write a favorable review. It will go a long way for the curious listener looking to hop on board to get a dose of entertaining and passionate sports talk. For the visually inclined, please subscribe to my YouTube channel, at J-Reels, as I post daily shorts and weekly vlogs, not only delving into the world of sports, but follow me on my journey to take the podcast and channel to new heights, as I provide an in-depth, behind-the-scenes look at what it takes for yours truly to produce content on a day-in, day-out, week-in, week-out basis. It goes without saying how much I truly appreciate all of your support, and without further ado, the J-Reels podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2... One. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast paced, jam packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J. Rills Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, Michael, people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic, in excellent spirits. Here on this late January day, dissecting every shred of what took place in sports over the past few days, as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard. And for those who've been banging with me going back to the very beginning, somewhere in the middle, or even as early as this past Thursday, I welcome you guys and gals back. And now the stage is set. We have three more football games before we call it a season. The best weekend of the season, which wasn't great overall. Obviously, it ended in thrilling fashion there last night as we expected in Orchard Park. I'll start there in a second. But as we take a look at these four games, and even though the consensus was that the late game yesterday was going to be the granddaddy of them all, where you didn't know what you were going to get from Houston, Baltimore, Green Bay, San Francisco, Tampa, Detroit. Not to say that those games are going to be blowouts or bores by any stretch. But knowing that these games, as unpredictable as they could be, we didn't expect those type of games where it was going to be tooth and nail, down to the wire. And we did see that in three of the four games, which is a big win for the NFL. And even if they were all blowouts, it doesn't matter because you're going to have anywhere between 
20 to 30 million people watching this and I'm sure the rating for CBS last night for Bill's Chief was just astronomical. And I'm going to start there. Usually I'll go from the Saturday 4.30 game up until last night. But that's a game that's going to reverberate. Now it's not going to be an all-time classic or one of those games that you're going to remember 50 years from now. But it is a game that when we take the 30,000 foot view of it, knowing that this was Patrick Mahomes' first road game in his entire career. Think about this. This is his sixth postseason as a starter. And his test in the postseason away from Arrowhead for the very first time was yesterday. So you have that. You also have the backdrop of Orchard Park, Buffalo, where the Bills, who were 6-6, and and looked like they weren't going to make it into the postseason altogether. They were 11th in the AFC and then shot all the way up to second when it was all said and done. They were able to host two playoff games in their building for the second straight year. And they went up against their former, or I should say former, they went up against their big-time nemesis, who they've been able to beat in the regular season. But for whatever the reason, come January, they cannot seal the deal. And this organization, as we know, going back to the 90s, four straight Super Bowls, going 0 for 4, the Music City Miracle, we could go through all of the games and all of the heartache, heartbreak, etc. Just three years ago in the, well really two years, three years in the AFC Championship game, which they lost to the Chiefs, but then two years ago in that divisional round, we know what happened then. Last year, just a brutal and pathetic effort against the Bengals in the divisional round, and then now with the game in their building to try to slay that dragon of the Kansas City Chiefs. And this is twofold because the first part of it are the Chiefs. And for those who thought that Patrick Mahomes was going to just go off into the night and not put up a fight or to be a guy that in a hostile environment he's not going to be able to deliver or prove to the masses that he is not that guy. And what you saw there was a masterful performance by number 15 to add more to his legacy to put his team back to another AFC Championship game and have the right to see if they could go back to another Super Bowl, which would be the fourth in the last, what, five years? And then the flip side of that are the Buffalo Bills, who cannot seem to get past the divisional round. They can't get over the Kansas City Chief hump. And I get it that everybody in Western New York, they may want to point the finger at Tyler Bass, and he took ownership of it. He said that the loss is totally on me. But it was unfair to do that. And for the Bills fans, Bills Mafia, etc. Who acted like jerks there throwing snowballs at the end. I mean, seriously guys, we could do better than that. But now it's another long offseason. And let me get to the bare bones part of the game here. I just had to set the table and set the stage for what took place there yesterday. I thought that this was going to be, whomever has the last ball is going to win the game. This was going to be a similar shootout to what we saw there two years ago in that divisional round. And what we saw was anything but that, especially when you got to the fourth quarter. You only had one punt in the game before you had that crazy sequence of the fake punt by Sean McDermott, which I did not get. I understand that was out of desperation. He didn't want to give the ball back to Mahomes. And as it was, the fake punt just floundered. And even if the advantage looked like it was going to be towards Buffalo when they saw what the setup was going to be, how the Chiefs looked like they weren't even, I believe they had 10 men on the field, and thought that there was a crack for them to maybe get the first down, get that momentum back, and see if they could go ahead to get the 
drive to where they could get the go-ahead score. And as it was, that was a turnover to where the Chiefs, where Isaiah Pacheco, who could play on my team any day, that's a guy that is slippery. That's a guy that runs hard. That's a guy that is electric. He was just phenomenal last night. He had that big run to set them up at first and goal. And then, yes, I see they got cute there with the end around with Miko Hardman, and then he fumbled the ball. He was actually falling on top of the Bill defender before it was knocked out of his hands, and it went through the end zone or into the end zone and out of bounds to where it was a touchback. The Bills dodged a missile there, and that's a rule that I hope the NFL looks at because that's just a terrible rule. If anything, I get it at the ball when it goes out of bounds there. It's a situation where the other team's going to get it. How about if the ball goes out of bounds? They just play it. I think that would have been second down. Let it be second and goal from the 20. But Chiefs ball. Why is it that the ball has to go automatically to the other team? So hopefully they take a look at that. The rules committee. Because we've seen that time after time in the playoffs. I thought about it yesterday where that one play in the, ironically... Browns-Chiefs playoff game three years ago where Donovan Peoples-Jones fumbled the ball out of bounds and they gave the ball to Kansas City right then and there. And this time it happened to the Chiefs. So instead of going up by 10 and pretty much sealing the game there, the Bills did get the ball back. Didn't really do much of it, but they did get to go down the field. They set themselves up nicely there with a, what was it, first and 10? Off the top of my head, I think it was somewhere in the... Chiefs, 24-yard line. They got one yard, and maybe it was at the 25. They got one yard, and then what happened was they had those two plays back-to-back, second and nine, where Allen threw that ball in the seam for Khalil Shakir, and he did have, and it's funny, because watching it real-time, I did notice Stephon Diggs with a crossing route, and I thought maybe he was going to go there, and then you saw Romo explain that on the replay, and it looked like Diggs had a lot of room They could have killed more clock and they could have set themselves up probably for a first and goal to go in for the touchdown, even though they need a field goal to tie and I understand. And then on the third and nine where the chief defense flushed Josh Allen out of the pocket, he tried to make a desperation heave for the end zone. No good to where Tyler Bass comes out and what happens? Wide right. The two words that rings through Buffalo, Orchard Park, Western New York, Northern New York, it doesn't even matter. Because you think back to Scott Norwood, Super Bowl 25, where he was that close from winning the game for a Buffalo Bill team that if they would have won that Super Bowl, and yes, they would have lost the subsequent three, or who knows, maybe they would have won another one. But that was just the beginning of the end of that run, obviously years later when we look back on it. And then for Tyler Bass, where right off of the leg, it looked like it was going to go through the uprights, and then it just all of a sudden started to veer right. The wind just dastardly took its place in the football god said, uh-uh, not today. And it just veered to the right of the goalpost, and that was it. To where the Chiefs hang on to survive. Now, that would have tied the game as we know. That wouldn't have been a game-winning kick. But it would have went to overtime. It would have been thrilling, and I'm sure CBS was looking forward to that. But the Chiefs move on. And obviously, they'll play the Baltimore Ravens. And what could you say about Kansas City? They are the boogeyman. And I understand everybody's sick of the Chiefs. They're sick of Patrick Mahomes. They're sick of, obviously, Travis Kelsey, the State Farm commercials, Andy Reid, them going back to another conference championship. I get it. 
But people, if you're not paying attention, you're witnessing greatness here with this guy because he performed top notch. A lot of big offensive plays. I mentioned Isaiah Pacheco. Even Rasheed Rice had a contribution there. Although he's nicked up, who knows what his status. I'm sure he's going to play come Sunday in Baltimore. But that's an injury you have to pay attention to because that's another key weapon that the Chiefs could possibly lose or at least be compromised against Baltimore. Travis Kelsey had a good game with a couple of touchdowns. Of course, you saw this graphic where the quarterback and now the tight end are the biggest quarterback wide receiver duo or tight end duo in postseason history. You also have their defense, which played in the crux of the game. They came through and delivered. And what more can you say about this team? They continue just to gut out these games and Mahomes, he's already an all-time great. That it's even safe to say that even if he doesn't go to a Super Bowl, but let's just say for argument's sake, he goes to a Super Bowl and loses, okay, fine. If he goes to a Super Bowl and and wins another MVP, then you can forget it. But this is a guy that, let's call it as we see it. If he were to retire after this year, he would go to the Hall of Fame. Automatic. That's how great he is. And he's one of the top four or five quarterbacks in the history of the sport. And people can say, well, Jay Reels, you're wilding. How could you even say that? There's no way. He still has the rest of his career to play out. I mean, what more can this guy do? This guy's won 13 playoff games in six years. He's won two Super Bowls. He's won two regular season MVPs. He's won two Super Bowl MVPs. How many other people can match that resume? All right, we know Tom Brady, obviously, his MVPs, the seven Super Bowls. Okay, fine, no problem. Peyton Manning, what is, he's won four MVPs, and he did win two Super Bowls, one MVP on his own. But Mahomes has put up prolific numbers in the postseason, unlike anything Peyton Manning has done. We can talk about plenty of other quarterbacks. All right, you want to go far back as Johnny Unitas? He's part of that pantheon, even Joe Montana, I get it. Those guys. All right, fine. So even if you take Peyton Manning out and you put Tom Brady, Johnny Unitas, Joe Montana, the next guy is Patrick Mahomes. So when you, I said top four or five, that's it. So throw a guy out there that you want to combat, argue. You want to say Terry Bradshaw. You want to say Aaron Rodgers. You want to say, we can go through the list. Patrick Mahomes is right there. And when it's all said and done, he may not get seven Super Bowls like Tom Brady did, but he's going to be... If not number one, he's going to be in the top two or three. So we would think that his success, barring major injury, of course, is going to continue here based on what you've seen. The guy has the guts of a burglar and the heart of a champion, just like his team, coach, etc. And on the flip side of that, I think it's time to blow it up in Buffalo. And I'm not saying drastic wholesale changes. We understand that their defense was nicked up. We understand that the defense was literally falling apart right in front of our eyes. But they do not have a game-wrecking, game-breaking wide receiver. And to me, that's what they need. James Cook is a very good back. You like him. Even Ty Johnson, very good complimentary player. But for this team to get that one guy for Josh Allen to rely on. And yes, he does have... Guys like Dalton Kincaid and even Dawson Knox who are good tight ends. And I know Kincaid made his mark here in his first season. But for Allen to have that guy, to have that Calvin Johnson-like, I don't even go as far as saying Randy Moss, 
But he needs to have that guy. Because Stephon Diggs, although he's a very good receiver, complimentary, maybe a 1A, but he is not a number one wide receiver there if you're a Buffalo Bills fan. And you saw it there on that bomb that he threw where it went right through Diggs' arms. That was one that he should have caught. And that's one that a number one receiver would catch. You mean to tell me that Terrell Owens, Randy Moss, Calvin Johnson, they're going to drop that ball? And I'm not putting it squarely on Stephon Diggs, but you get where I'm coming from. Because if they had that bonafide number one lockdown wide receiver that is going to catch anything in his vicinity, who knows where the Bills would be today as opposed to them having to ponder a long off season of what ifs. And that's what it's about. It's about winning Super Bowls. And I said this a couple of weeks ago where everybody, after them beating Miami and everybody was thinking, "Uh uh-oh, this could be Buffalo's time. They are the hottest team going into the postseason. Watch out, so on and so forth. And I said, I wouldn't be so quick to do that. And here's where you saw it. And I'm sure that because it was a 2-3 matchup, you knew that the last team that they probably wanted to face was was Kansas City for that regard. But even though it was in their building, I'm sure they had all the confidence and flying high, etc. But one more time, they were not able to exercise that demon. And they got to sit on this for another 365 days. Oh, just brutal when you think about it. Now, I'll stick with the AFC. I'll go to the other game. Now, the Ravens, They got off to a good start and there was that part of the game where you kind of wondered there in the second quarter where the adjustments were being made, where D'Amico Ryans was pressuring and blitzing Lamar Jackson. They were losing yards as you saw and even though they did get the punt return which was huge because at 10-3 it made it 10-10 and then when the Texans had the ball right before the half where they marched down the field, they converted on a 3rd and 15 to Nico Collins, then they had another big play after that, set him up in field goal range to where they missed the field goal, which would have made it 13-10, and that was before the Ravens had another opportunity with the ball, and their defense was still just all-out blitz, they made Lamar Jackson uncomfortable, he wasn't able to get in sync, he wasn't able to elude that pass rush, and they had to actually punt the ball right there, before halftime, and you thought to yourself, man, the Texans are hanging around. It looks like they've been able to come up with a game plan here on the fly and made adjustments to where they, one more time, made Lamar Jackson have his head on a swivel. And what did you see when they came out of the gate at halftime? That was it. Lamar Jackson said, I'm taking over. I'm going to erase all of my playoff foibles, the one and three. I can't deliver in the postseason. He even made it his own personal vendetta to everybody out there, all the haters, all the non-believers, etc., to say, "Uh uh-uh, this is going to be my postseason to win. And what did he do? March down the field, touchdown. March down the field, touchdown. Four total touchdowns, two passing, two by his legs, as we've seen time after time after time. And the Ravens went going away. And the Texan offense, yes, like I mentioned, they had a couple of drives there in that first half although it was catapulted by the punt return, but they were unable to get anything going. The clock struck 12 on this team, and the bright lights were just too big for them. 
And I understand that's going to sound more like, oh, Jay Reels, what, now you're giving the Ravens a pass? No, give it up. They deserve all the credit in the world for making those adjustments, for coming out and just taking over the game to where the Texans had no clue. And as you saw there, even in the first half going into the second half, all the pre-snap penalties, whether they were false starts, illegal shifts, encroachments on the defense, they were just nonstop. So... You knew that this was going to be a tall order for the Texans to try to just even stay in the game, let alone win it. And all the kudos and success goes to the head coach for winning a playoff game, for winning a division. And not only that, this experience, I'm sure, will be beneficial for this team moving forward to try to take that next step next year where you think with the Colts, they're going to be back with Anthony Richardson. And I'm sure Jacksonville, they're going to be chomping at the bit to get the bad taste out of their mouths for this season when they started off 8-3 and three and did not make it into the playoffs. So you would think that the AFC South would be competitive for them. But this was the Ravens' time. There was no way they were going to be denied. And you saw that pretty much right out of the gate to start off the second half with that touchdown. And then they were just going downhill like an avalanche. And even though they're on the ropes there for a hot minute, but they weren't to be heard from again. And to me, that was a team that there were deer in headlights. So the Ravens move on at least for one week, but now is going to come the true test. And I'll get into that more on Thursday's podcast where this matchup is going to be, you would think, an epic one to start off championship weekend Sunday at three o'clock down in Baltimore. Now, as far as the NFC goes, I'll go back to Saturday night and boy, The Packers were this close to pulling off an enormous upset. And I'm sure the kicker, Anders Carlson, still hasn't slept. Because if I was him, I would feel the same way. And not to put it all on him, because I know that he's probably thinking, man, I had a shot to put us up by seven, and we saw what happened there on that final drive. But Green Bay, they were game They had an opportunity there in the first half. I understand why they went for it there on that fourth and one where they got stopped because they knew field goals weren't going to cut it. And I had no problem with that move. And I'm sure there are a lot of people that are going to second guess that to think, kick the field goal, get the points, you want to get points. Against this team and against a lot of these teams, field goals aren't going to cut it. Now, as it was, they were in the game. It was 7-6 at the half. And then we saw what took place after that. But for... The head coach there, Matt LaFleur, for him taking that opportunity to know that they were moving the ball and they were there at the what? I believe it was the the 11-yard line. Why not go for it? It was fourth and one. I guess it was maybe fourth and three, fourth and four. It's like, no, kick the field goal at that point. Fourth and one? What the hell? You got to take your chances in these games, especially when you're a big underdog like the Packers. All right, so they got stopped. And not that that was the biggest play of the game or certainly the turnaround, but the Packers... They ran the ball there with Aaron Jones. He was the first 100-yard rusher against the Niners in forever, as you saw there during the game. And listen, they were the better team there for about 54 minutes in that game. And then once that kick was missed, you just knew that the Niners were going to go down the field. And then this was what we've all wanted to see as sports fans. Brock Purdy. With his team down by more than the field goal. With about six in change left to go in the game. And what did he do? He marched his team down the field and into pay dirt. And Christian McCaffrey had the touchdown run. But there were a couple of big throws there in between. That one throw there to the tight end Conley 
on the right sideline. To me, that was a big play there. And the Niners were able to take the lead. And even with the Packers having about a minute seven to go in the game, they still had opportunity. I believe they had two timeouts. I think maybe one. But for Jordan Love to throw that pass, and I get it, it was desperation, but he had to throw that ball away. He had to live to see another down. And I believe that was second down and 10 at that time. But he tried to play hero ball. Terrible decision there on his part. And Jordan Love has had a great second half of his season and certainly played well in this postseason. But that was one that I'm sure he would love to take back. And the Niners, they avoided a disaster. That's all there is to it. And I was thinking this throughout the course of the game and I even got a couple of texts to where people were saying that the football gods may be on the Packers' side because of all of the just brutal playoff losses that they've had over the years, dating back to when Colin Kaepernick was the quarterback, and then obviously the NFC Championship a few games ago when the Niners went on to the Super Bowl to play the Chiefs that one year, and then obviously the game in Lambeau where Aaron Rodgers marched down the field for a touchdown, and then their offense was never to be heard as they lost 13-10 as a one seed. So they were that close. And they weren't able to get the job done there late in the game. So for the Niners, they live to see another day. And they're going to face the Detroit Lions. Where I'm so happy for that team, fan base, organization. The flip side of the Buffalo Bills when you talk about long-suffering fans. And listen, at least the Bills have been to Super Bowls. Granted that they were a generation plus ago. But the Lions... They haven't sniffed a conference championship game in 33 years. And this is the first time they're going to have the taste of that where they're going to have to go out west and go up against a Niner team that whenever big favorites dodge a missile like that, you would think that they're going to come back even stronger. But this Lions team, they're going to be tough. And you saw that there yesterday. I get it that it was against Tampa They're not world beaters in the least, but they certainly played hard and they played well and it was tight throughout. I know that that touchdown there, that they got to tie the game at 17. You could certainly question that whether or not Baker Mayfield was actually down when he threw that ball away, which then set up the next play third and 10 for the touchdown and made it 17 up. But then the Lions came back to score. Jameer Gibbs, who could play on my team, he's another one of those backs, electric, elusive, And certainly had his fingerprints on this game, especially in that second half. So when the Lions then took the lead at that point, and here was the biggest play of the game. The Buccaneers were unable to get anything going. They get the ball back to the Lions there. A little bit more than, I guess, eight minutes left there in that fourth quarter. And then at 24-17 on that third and 15 where they converted to Amon St. Brown. And I thought right then and there, I said, oh man, if they score a touchdown here, that's the biggest play of the game. Because if they do not convert on that play, whether it's incomplete or maybe it gets short of the sticks, who knows whether or not Dan Campbell would have gone for it. That we'll never know. But let's just say for argument's sake, that pass is incomplete. And now they punt the ball back to Tampa where they could go down the field and see if they could tie the game at 24. As you saw there, couple plays later, Amon St. Brown gets the touchdown to make it 31-23. Excuse me, 31-17. And yes, you did see the Buccaneers get the touchdown. And they try to go for two there. I get it with the analytics, which I didn't have a problem with. I know a lot of teams are doing that. Because they figure that if you don't get the two there, you're going to get it there on the back end to tie the game. So that's one metric 
that I actually like and have grown to like here over the last couple of years as opposed to going to conventional wisdom, just kick the extra point and away we go. But for the Lions to perform the way they have and speaking of that drive, that third and 15, that's where you get good coaching where they picked on the cornerback there, Zion McCollum, who was replacing Jamel Dean there and you could see Amon St. Brown just going at that corner and Jared Goff realizing and exposing that you got a backup in there and that's what you have to do in order to capitalize and get yourself down the field and into the end zone. It's taking advantage of opportunities like that and that's where Dan Campbell, give it up, that he gets a gold star for that and then on that final drive after the Lions had to punt the ball there and the Buccaneers had one timeout, Baker Mayfield who had a very good game And I know he had an early interception, which was tipped. But for that throw to be made there, that was just a window where nobody could have caught that ball. As you saw there, the linebacker Derek Barnes sealed the game there with that interception. I know that that's one that Baker Mayfield is probably still stewing over, considering that he's not going to have another opportunity to take this team on a magic carpet ride to San Francisco because it's Detroit Rock City for the Lions and their team. And it was great to see that at the end, Aiden Hutchinson just standing there, just surveying the entire building, the crowd, the atmosphere, everything. And I would have loved to have, I don't know who was the sideline reporter when they got to Aiden Hutchinson to say, what is it that you're thinking about as you're soaking this all in? Here's a guy that was born in Michigan, played in Michigan, high school, is a Wolverine, and now is one win away from a Super Bowl. Would have liked to have known what was going through his mind at that point. But those are going to be two fascinating games next week. We'll talk a lot about it on Thursday's podcast. And I have to say, these are the matchups I think that everybody wants to see. I get it if Dallas was there, but we've seen that movie before. And a lot of people would have thought that as a two seed, if Dallas were to get there, all right, what is it going to be? Instead of 42-10 in the regular season, maybe it will be 28-17. Or 31-20. And then to have Buffalo then play in Baltimore where their defense is shot. And I get it, the guts and just the indestructible Josh Allen. Would that have been enough? Maybe, but then maybe not. Where you want to see Mahomes to have an opportunity to see as defending champs whether or not they're going to go back to a Super Bowl against the, we would think, the MVP of the league and one Lamar Jackson I think this is going to be a stellar championship Sunday. And real quick, as I like to talk about this, I know that the suits at CBS who are going to obviously have the game, as you saw all the promos there last night, I'm sure they want any combination of San Francisco, Kansas City. They want to see Mahomes there more, I think, than Lamar Jackson, even though they're having a huge season, one seed, like I mentioned Probably going to win the MVP. But I'm sure they would want to have Kansas City-San Francisco as their prime game if you put True Serum into the executives there at CBS. Follow that by, I would even think, maybe San Francisco-Baltimore next only because it's a rematch of the Christmas night game and I'm sure they'd want to see that. But what would be fascinating, think about this, people. Could you imagine if both the road teams win here? You will have a game 
two weeks after that in Allegiant Stadium where the NFL season, the 2023 season will literally come full circle. Where the first game to open up the NFL season, if you remember, on that Thursday night, the second Thursday of September, was Detroit at Kansas City. Could you imagine if that's going to be the matchup there to end the season? I think that'd be fascinating. And then you have Detroit-Baltimore, which I'm sure that CBS does not want to see. Now, we get it. It's going to get a huge rating regardless. These teams could play on the moon at 2 in the morning on a Wednesday, and they'll still get a ginormous rating. But Baltimore-Detroit is not going to move the needle for a lot of people because that's just how it is. I mean, think about that. So I would think in that order, KC San Francisco, Baltimore San Francisco, Detroit Kansas City, and Detroit Baltimore, I think in that order is what CBS would look at. And I'm sure they're not looking at it that way, but that's how I look at it as a fan as to what game that they would want to see on their network come February 11th. All right, now let me put on my high tops. Let's talk a little NBA here as most teams are at the halfway or even past the halfway point of the season. And I'll get into more of that when we get past the All-Star break to really go in on what the second half will be. But considering that we're at that point of the season where we could kind of look ahead and kind of see what's going to happen here. And as I talked about on the podcast Thursday, here we are now three weeks into the new year, to the day. And... All you have coming out of the association over the last few days are the Clippers closing their game against the Nets on a 22-0 run to win. And we know the Nets right now are a far cry from what they once were. And not that that's saying much, considering they didn't win anything but just a first-round series a few years ago with Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and even James Harden for that matter. And there's the irony there as Harden is in L.A. as a Clipper. Through Philadelphia, I might add, as we know. Or even Trey Young, who suffered a concussion out indefinitely. So hopefully he's on the mend as the Hawks are hovering at the bottom of the Eastern Conference bracket there from 7 to 10. We can even get into Udonis Haslam getting his number 40 jersey retired to the rafters there at uh, whatever that name of the arena used to be, American Airlines, down in Biscayne, Key Biscayne Road or in downtown Miami. This is what the NBA has come to. And I'm sure that the Hoops fan could come on here and say, Jay Reels, come on. You really got to get into other things that's happening and you're not really paying attention, so on and so forth. But this is what happens when you're in the middle of a long season. I mean, we could break down these conferences. We could talk about these winning streaks. We could talk about teams that have been maybe even playing over their heads for a certain extent. But when it's all said and done, when we get to April and the playoffs begin, it doesn't matter who's going to be hot at that time. And yes, we could talk back to last year as far as the Heat as an 8 seed going to a final. And if you want to stick it up my rear end and talk about that, that's fine. But if Giannis didn't get hurt in that first game and missed games 2 and 3, do you think the Heat would have won that series altogether? And mind you, the Bucks had epic meltdowns in that game. The game 4, especially when Giannis came back, where they had a 13-point lead with 6 minutes to go and he spit the bit. And they also had a big lead in game five in their building and the same deal. And I understand, maybe Miami and their heat culture, etc. Obviously have a lot of players that are gutsy, gritty, etc. And they overcame the number one Bucks. But when we take a look at what's gone on here throughout the NBA, 
We know what's happening in the East. And I get it that the Cavaliers have played well here to where they've won seven in a row and they're trying to breathe down the necks of the Sixers who are two games behind in the loss and two and a half back there for a three seed. And then the Knicks who have played well and I know you had the homecoming there a little bit where Toronto came in over the weekend with R.J. Barrett and Emmanuel quickly. But is that going to be anything that's newsworthy or something to really get into if you're outside of the New York area? Absolutely not. So for the East, I mean, that's what you pretty much have there. I know Orlando has slipped a bit after their hot start. And now that was a team that was where? Somewhere in the 3, 4, 5 area. And now they've dropped down to 8. So all right, you want to pay attention there. Or even the Pacers after that trade for Pascal Siakam to have him play alongside Tyrese Halliburton. And of course, Halliburton's been out with that hamstring. But also he and Miles Turner, obviously they've... Slipped here a little bit over the last couple of weeks. And then out west, it's been the usual suspects there at the top. The T-Wolves have played well. We know about Oklahoma City Thunder and what they've done. Denver, the defending champ. They actually won in Boston on Friday. The first Celtic loss where Jason Tatum had a chance to tie the game in regulation and didn't. And that was a big game for Nikola Jokic because of the Golden State Warrior assistant coach who passed away. A guy who was a mentor, a guy who helped him develop in his native country of Serbia and I'm sure he played with a heavy heart and dedicated that game to him as Denver pulled out a victory there on the road but for the Western Conference the Clippers as we talked about there with that comeback against the Nets and then you have the Mavericks who are trying to not stay afloat because they're going to make it to the postseason but avoid that 7-10 through 10 as they're tied there with the Phoenix Suns and they've played well as they've turned it on here as of late winners of 5 in a row The Lakers, they can't seem to get out of their own way as we know, even though they're at 500, but they're ninth in the conference. Golden State, we've talked about them, even though they're two back of Utah for the final spot in the Western Conference, but that's what you have there with Golden State as they try to get themselves together, considering the whole Draymond Green fiasco of early this year and him coming back to the team and then the loss of their assistant coach. We get all that. But that is the NBA, and I can't expound on it any further. What more can I say at this point in time that I could say, whoa, okay, let's watch out for this team. Oh, all right, well, this team's doing well. And I have talked about how Minnesota's played well and how that team, as well as Oklahoma City Thunder, can they actually be conference finalists in the West? Or are they just going to be good regular season teams that play well a la Sacramento last year and it was their first foray being a three seed and they went up against Golden State but they did lose a game seven in their building and Memphis is a two seed even with the whole John Morant off the court nonsense but having to play the Lakers and we saw what happened there in that first round. Teams that have had overachieving or very good regular seasons that does not translate into successful postseasons. Are we going to see that from Minnesota or OKC this year? And then in the East, it's top-heavy as we know. Are the Cavs, Knicks, all right, the Heat, you got to give them their due and their dap, even though they're currently sixth in the conference. But we know they can play against those big guys, especially if they are going to grind out these games and not quit and show their medal, etc., as we've seen time after time after time. But there isn't any more that I can expound on when it comes to the association at this point in time. What do you want me to do? Talk about who's in the lead for the MVP? Or who's coach of the year? Nobody cares about that. And yes, I get it that that's good fodder for sports talk and to debate and things of that nature, but 
I want to talk about the games. I want to talk about the teams. I want to talk about who's progressing. And there hasn't been a topsy-turvy, flip-flop, up-and-down type of thing, unlike the NHL, which I'll get to in a second. And not to say the NHL is any better because we know that that's a long slog, that that's just a marathon that we just can't wait to get to April so we can start the postseason and see who's going to be on the road to a Stanley Cup final. But that's all I could say here about the NBA. There hasn't been anything newsworthy. I told you about what? Udonis Haslam's retirement jersey or Trey Young being concussed. And I understand that he's one of the big players in the sport, even though he's on a team that's floundering. But if he's going to be out for any significant amount of time, that's going to hurt their chances, even though we would think they'll prevail. That bottom of the Eastern 7-10 is very weak with the Nets, the Raptors. Forget about Charlotte, Washington, and Detroit, as we know. But that is it. There's nothing else I can really get into when it comes to what's happening on the hardwood. And then college basketball, as I mentioned last week, we'll get into that more as we move deeper, not only into this month, we only have nine days left, but certainly once we get into February and once the NFL season concludes there with the Super Bowl being three weeks from yesterday. But now as I turn my attention to the ice, and I've been chomping at the bit to get into this, and even though I talked about this on my YouTube channel, at J Reels, by the way, the New York Islanders, who have had one of these seasons that has been forgettable to this point, started off slow, where they lost seven in a row at one point there in the latter part of November into December, and then they turned it on a little bit, winning 9 of 12 as you got into the new year. And then now, they've gotten to a point where they have going through a stretch where they were 2-6-3 and three, heading into last night's game against Dallas. So in the process, in the latter part of the week, where they went 0-4 on a... Midwest trip where they lost in Winnipeg, where they lost in Minnesota, where they lost to the lowly Chicago Blackhawks, no Connor Bedard, I might add, and they foiled another game where they couldn't execute in the third period, etc., to where they let go of Lane Lambert, which I was totally for. I didn't like the hiring of Lambert, despite the fact that he was an assistant coach on the Barry Trotts before Trotts and the upper management decided to part ways, I guess based on philosophical differences but for Lou Lamorello the GM to pluck as his next coach Patrick Waugh yes that Patrick Waugh the former Montreal Canadian Colorado Avalanche on my YouTube channel I said three Stanley Cups he's actually won four Stanley Cups one of the all-time greats between the pipes and he did have a three-year stint in Colorado where they made it to the playoffs one year and did not make it the next two years and was subsequently fired. But this is a guy, no nonsense, hard-nosed, even though he was a goalie, and you may think that, all right, well, no, he's a guy that's going to go in there, and if he has to flip over a buffet table, he's going to do it. He has that old-school mentality. He's not one of these young guys coming through the ranks that has to be a player's coach, that has to coddle his guys, that has to be more of a babysitter or a caretaker. Nuh-uh-uh. Not this guy. Now, the one problem you have with it is that coming out of the gate, you would think that it's going to be a boon for the team because maybe they needed a new voice, maybe they needed a shift. As you saw there last night, they won an overtime against Dallas to where Bo Hovart, or Horvat, excuse me, where 41 seconds into overtime, got the winner, and maybe that's a sign of things to come to where the Islanders could start trending north. Because if you recall on Thursday's podcast, 
Two weeks prior to that, I was talking about how the Islanders in that nice stretch, they went all the way from the bottom of the Metropolitan to second place right behind the Rangers. And then they plummeted right back down to the sixth spot in the division to where they had to make a change, they had to make a move. But boy, Patrick Wah, I did not see that coming. And I got news for you, if you couldn't tell by how I sound in delivering Wah coming onto the team, I embrace it, I love it, I am here for it. And let's only hope that this Islander team, which, listen, they're not going to win a Stanley Cup this year. They're not going to, maybe they'll make some noise in the postseason. Who knows? And this team is not an offensive firepower or powerhouse type team. They're not. They're going to have to stick to their bare bones defense, as we've seen going back to Barry Trotz. And who knows what the game plan is going to be for the coach as to what he's going to implement here with this current roster that he has. But I'm sure he's going to have them fight throughout, not literally of course, but from a standpoint that they're going to be lunch pail kings, they're going to grind these games out, they're going to fall back on their big time playmakers on the team, the Brock Nelsons, the Matthew Barzals, obviously the Bo Horvats of the world, and see where that goes. And they're Captain Anders Lee, and hopefully this team will turn it around as they're on the outside looking in from a wild card. I understand it may be a little bit too early to talk about that, a lot of these teams have played more than half, unlike the NBA, which is, as I mentioned, hovering around the halfway point, or just surpassing that. But you have a lot of teams that have played 45, 46, 47 games. And the Islanders, as constituted right now, and even though they've moved up in the standings here, even with that win yesterday, they went from 6th to 4th with 51 points. But let's see if this is going to bode well for this team the rest of the year. And I think it should, and it will. In the long run, who knows? That voice may get tiresome. The players may turn a closed ear on it. An eye roll or two, who knows? But as of right now, let's just only hope for us Islander fans that this will catapult us in the direction where we'll trend north and maybe make some noise if they do qualify for the postseason come April. And let's see where the chips fall at that time. And then the irony of ironies, I didn't even talk about this the other day, but... I have mentioned in the past about Marc-Andre Fleury who surpassed last Monday night of all people Patrick Waugh as the second winningest goalie in NHL history 552 wins he's behind Martin Brodeur which he's not going to catch I believe he's what 691 but the thing is is that in that victory as a member of the Wild a 4-0 shutout against whom? the Islanders now of course Waugh wasn't coach at the time But for Fleury to achieve that milestone and a guy who's won cups but has been pulled left and right and I talked about it, you have to go back a couple weeks in the archives if you want to check out that snippet there of Marc-Andre Fleury, whether or not he's a Hall of Famer. I'm not going to get into that again at this very juncture but I did talk about it and unpack that a little bit at that time. But he's got the numbers and he's probably going to go into the Hall of Fame. So... When it's all said and done, he'll be enshrined there in Toronto, the Hockey Hall of Fame. But to me, yours truly personally, and I get it, he's a winner. He's been on winning teams, etc. But he's been more of a compiler, if you ask me. So, and that's not to knock him. Because again, the Hall of Fame, it's not an insult to not be called a Hall of Famer. If you're borderline, or if you're on the cusp, or even if you're very good, the Hall of Fame is for the elite. It's for the great. And I'll just leave it at that. And let's see what else we have here. The Oilers, let's talk about them as if 
Now, I understand I've talked about them quite a bit here over the last few weeks, but now they've won a Baker's Dozen, 13 in a row. And they've added Corey Perry for whatever insurance, a 38-year-old who's had a big-time career, as we know, more so with Anaheim, but then it's bounced around here, Montreal, Tampa, Chicago, before they let him go with conjure, with conduct, excuse me, detrimental to the team. So let's see, whatever Corey Perry has left will bring to this Edmonton Oilers team who is on fire and flying high. And even with that, and as I discussed in weeks past, even with this 13-game winning streak, they finally got past the LA Kings in the standings for third place. So that's how big of a hole they dug. And mind you, they earlier in the season won eight straight games. So they're on a tear. They're playing like the team that a lot of people expected. And they are six points behind the Golden Knights and now 13 points behind Vancouver. So they're seven points ahead of the Vegas Golden Knights, Vancouver that is. And I talked about Vancouver last week about a team that for the most part has flown under the radar this year up until recently considering it was all about Vegas. It was all about even the Bruins early on this season. Colorado, who had also played well, but then you have Winnipeg, who has shot up the Central, who have also been a bit of a surprise. But the NHL, as we get through this slog, and their All-Star game, I think, is in a couple of weeks. I should know this off the top of my head. That's how much I pay attention to these All-Star breaks. So, the All-Star game, I believe, is being played in Toronto. Let me see if I can take a quick look as to when that's going to be. As we look at the schedule, if it's not going to be this week, it may be the week of the, between the conference championships in the NFL and the Super Bowl. And that's when you would think the All-Star weekend will be and will take place. And let me just double check that here as I go through it. I think it's Saturday, February 3rd, if I'm not mistaken. I have the skills competition. Yes, it'll be that Saturday the 3rd. So the NHL still has a couple weeks before the All-Star break comes, even though they're past the halfway point of the season. So we have that to chew on, NHL fans. And it's going to be competitive because, as I mentioned, you have a lot of those teams that, if you're not a diehard hockey fan, the Winnipegs, the Vancouver Canucks of the world, who have really been above and beyond what I thought they would be coming into this year. Obviously in the East, I know the Rangers have... Stumbled here a little bit, although they did win. They're on a West Coast trip now. They won in Anaheim. They did lose in L.A., where Jonathan Quick made his return back as a member of the Rangers in L.A., where he won two cups, etc., but he downplayed the whole thing. Just another game, another city. We tried to get the win, but we didn't. I believe they lost 2-1. So Jonathan Quick didn't want to hear anything about video tributes or standing O's or anything like that. I guess he kept it humble. Good for him. No problem with that on my part. But that's what you have there with the NHL as they continue to march on here toward the end of the month. A couple of other quickies before I go. Let's get into the Australian Open where on the men's side, it's pretty much been chalk. You haven't had a lot of the big guys fall whether your name is Novak Djokovic, although he has had to sweat here a little bit with some of his matches. But obviously, he's still alive. Carlos Alcaraz. We could talk about all these guys. Daniel Medvedev, who played until 3.40 in the morning. A few nights ago, as he rallied back from an 0-2 hole, four hours, 23-minute match with Emil, I'm going to butcher his last name, forgive me, Rusevori. And you haven't had a lot of the men's players fall, but the women's side, boy, they've been dropping like flies, including Iga Swiatek, who lost to Linda 
Noskova, 3-6-6-3-6-4. So she was actually up a set going into the final two. And she succumbed there out of the Australian Open. And that goes along with the Elena Rabakinas of the world, the Jessica Pagulas, Anjabur. Uh, going down the list, Caroline Wozniacki for a lesser degree, although she's been a top player for many years, but she's just a big name who also was out of this tournament last week. So now it's all set up for Coco Goff and even Arena Sabalenka. And I don't know what side of the bracket they're on, but for Goff, who won the U.S. Open last year, as we know, is looking to win back-to-back Grand Slam titles. And as I mentioned, she doesn't have any of those aforementioned women that are in her way in order for her to get that second straight singles tournament so that's one we'll keep an eye on here for the next few days heading into Thursday's podcast we'll see what's going to happen with the men's will we get that Carlos Alcaraz Novak Djokovic final that we would only hope for as tennis fans but if not we know who the other guys that are hanging around there at the top of the sport but we would think that it'll be number one versus number two when it's all said and done but as we know that's why they play the games or in this case that's why they play the matches but the women's side has been intriguing with all of these top players falling by the wayside. And let's see if this is going to mean that Coco Goff could come out victorious again, which would be a tremendous start to her year after closing out the 2023 tennis circuit, especially when it comes to Grand Slams, on a high note. And then with the baseball, one big free agent goes by the board, and that's a one Josh Hader who signed a five-year, $95 million deal with the Houston Astros. So between he and Ryan Presley, you talk about a back of the bullpen, which is formidable to say the least, and that's understating it. And I don't believe, I should double check this, because with baseball players, you never know, with free agency and who knows. For all I know, Ryan Presley is probably a guy that is waiting, similar to the Jordan Montgomery's of the world, the Blake Snell's, so on and so forth. And then next thing you know, Ryan Presley is going to be in St. Louis as their closer, for all I know. But for Presley... They had discussions, now that I think about it, with the front office bringing in Hayner to be the closer. Presley's going to be your setup man. And he was all on board for bringing on Hayner, a guy who, as we all know, with the long hair, left-hander, the big arm. You got to wonder whether or not you question his, I'll say his grit and his availability. How about that? And what I mean by that is, He's a guy that only wants to pitch the ninth inning. He's not going to come in for four out saves or even five out saves for that matter. We saw that late in the year last year as a member of the Padres where the Padres are already out to sea. And even though I think they were still in the mix last year, they were on the fringe and hanging by a thread to make it into the postseason. And he was not brought in the game in the eighth inning against the game versus the Giants. And even mentioned to his manager at the time, Bob Melvin, to say... Uh, I'm only good for one inning, Skip. I'm not going to go out there to try to slam the door in the bottom of the eighth inning, which if you're any organization, you would steer clear from that because you want a guy that's going to take the ball, whether you desperately need a win to stay in whatever dire playoff hopes that you have to try to make it into the postseason or a guy that just wants to take the ball and just show and prove to not only his team, but to himself that he could deliver the goods. And for Hayter, all right, ninth inning is yours. And Presley was a guy that said, all right, it's the right thing to do. 
I'm glad that the organization came to me to consult on them signing off on the move like this. So, very selfless of Presley. Good for him. And Hayter, does this make the Astros a World Series contender? They're going to be contenders no matter what, especially going into this last year because remember, Alex Bregman and Jose Altuve are going into the final years of their deals. And Michael Brantley's retired. And Jordan Alvarez, he's part of the mix there, no problem. Kyle Tucker, I believe he's going to be also a free agent after this year. I have to double check that. I know the aforementioned two are. And this run, this window by the Astros, this could be it. Now, who knows who's going to be coming up the pike as far as the minor leagues. Remember, in the Justin Verlander trade, the Astros sent Drew Gilbert, the outfielder, to the Mets. So it's not as if you have a guy that's coming up the ranks that can replace one of these guys in the near future. And as we know, Altuve and Bregman are both infielders. So we would think that the Astros are going to be one of those teams that are going to battle it out, being in another ALCS, I'm sure, when it's all said and done. They're kind of like the Chiefs in that regard, where they're always in the conference championship, or in this case, the ALCS, always fighting for an opportunity to go to a World Series or for the Chiefs, a Super Bowl. So I don't see this being any different. Does this make them an automatic favorite? Maybe not. You would still have to look at the defending champs, the Texas Rangers, and especially if they're going to have a healthy Max Scherzer come July, of course, and even Jacob deGrom. Sometime you would think in the spring, if not there by April, if he isn't sound somewhere, you would think around Memorial Day or even past that. But if you're going to bring those two pitchers back and their lineup is still very stout, you would think that they're going to be a tough out here come 2024. Who knows what the Yankees, if they're looking to make a move, they were rumored to get Hater here, but obviously that wasn't the case. They go to the enemy in that regard. But I would think the Astros, they're going to be one of the top two or three teams that are going to be in the mix here when it comes to coming out of the AL and representing in a World Series and having Hater there in the back end to go along with Presley certainly solidifies that. But as far as the other guys that I mentioned, Blake Snell, who's coming off a Cy Young Award, I might add, No rumors there. Matt Chapman, Jordan Montgomery, Cody Bellinger. The cupboard is still barren. And we're nine days away, really 10 days from February 1st. And pitchers and catchers reporting on February 15th, which is about three and a half weeks away. Makes you wonder whether or not these guys, they will sign eventually. But will they sign before spring training? We shall see. That'll do it, my good people. Another episode just about in the books, as always. Thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you so much for carving out precious time out of your day to listen to what it is that I have to say about what goes on in the world of sports. If you haven't done so, like I mentioned at the top, subscribe, rate, and review. Follow me on my YouTube channel and all my socials, for that matter, as I post daily shorts. And forthcoming, I'll have vlogs weekly. Times are going to be changing. The shift is going to come in the next two to three weeks. On the podcast, you heard it here. I've said this before, and now we're getting closer to it. So you definitely want to keep your attention on the YouTube channel, at J Reels, or Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, the J Reels Podcast, Twitter, X, J Reels, one, just a number. Or if you want to hit me up with a question, comment, suggestion, you could do so at the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. Whatever you want to send to me, put forth. No doubt I will get you back, hit you up. And follow up with you guys and gals when the opportunity arises. Because whether you do or do not know, this is what I love to do, people. It's in the blood. It's in the DNA. 
and to think next Thursday February 1st I'll be a month away from a 6th anniversary of this podcast so that just goes to show you I am not going anywhere I've started this independently and I'm continuing to work my way up the ladder and it's even going to get better like I said in the weeks to come so you definitely want to stay tuned and keep yourself abreast of what's going to happen here because you're going to hear nothing but fire passion fury energy coming into this microphone through your earbuds headphones or speakers with my thoughts feelings opinions analysis critiques praise on anything and everything that happens on the world of the diamond ice gridiron hardwood golf course racetrack tennis court boxing ring octagon you name it from my lips to your ears from my heart to your soul from where i am to wherever you are the j reels podcast always comes correct direct and in full effect from the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond. Peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>